0: Grateful for the wisdom of the book of James that has been preached to us. And so as we prepare our hearts to receive God's word preached, let us listen to it read over us. James 5, 13 through 20. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's pray together. God, we pray uh, to you. We come before you and ask for help because we need you to open the eyes of our heart. We need you to hear. Um, We need you to make what you've said thousands of years ago, what is still relevant to people all over the globe, alive to us. We need this, Lord. You've promised it. We're expecting big things from you. We might see them immediately. They might be slowly revealed, but we expect that. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we are, if you haven't noticed or if you've been around, we've been taking, we're taking four passages this summer and spending three weeks on each one, considering what it means to be a one-anothering community, and that means what it means to be an intentional community that moves out of the intention of knowing Jesus Christ. Uh, And we've hit different aspects of that, and this week we're going to look at uh, not something that is mentioned uh, literally with one another, but is very much present in the passage in those last couple verses we read which is uh, recover one another. Recover one another. Now there's a uh, car in my neighborhood that has a bumper sticker on the back that says, not all who wander are lost. Uh, you, you know, does anybody know where that quote's from? Okay, people are nodding their heads. Well, say it! <laughs> Any. What's that? Tolkien, right. Fellowship of the Ring, Lord of the Rings movies, you've probably heard of them, seen it, right? And uh, the context is actually about the character Strider who becomes Aragorn, right? And when he's the free ranger, you might think, well, this guy's just sort of wandering, but there's a deep purpose or destiny. And so we would acknowledge that you can appear to be wandering, but really have a purpose and a destiny. Maybe that's some of you. But then there's also a sort of wandering that we would say, you you know, you got to say it can be foolish. You know, it's a wandering that's more self-indulgent. It's a wandering that um, is uh, like this hyper-individualism that doesn't want to be locked down in responsible loving relationships. You know, we would, in the Bible language, covenant relationships. And and that probably gets a little bit more closer to what James is talking about, the wanderer who needs to be recovered in those verses. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And will cover a multitude of sins. And James, the focus here, notice, it's not evangelistic. It's not this idea of uh, trying to seek or reach out to people that are uh, outside of the church because he mentions brother, right? He's talking about wandering brothers and sisters. And what's unique about this passage is there's some other passages in the Bible, and they they. Emphasize more of the recoverer. They're speaking to the recoverer, saying, you know, uh, you know go seek this person out or exhort one another daily to, to resist the hardness of sin's deceit. But this one actually is talking to the recovered wanderer, right? If anyone among you wanders from the truth, and as James speaks to that person, this person, these people. There's two things he does. One is he highlights our need for recovery, but also the honor that comes with participating in that work of God. Again, you know the the song we sang was such a wonderful tone. I I, I long that that be conveyed in words. That this is the tone of the Christian faith. This is the tone of God the Father. Whatever place, you know. Again, if if you're whatever way you're wandering, that is the tone. Come, come. But first, we've got to get the need for recovery, and that reminded me, I was sort of on the English literature track today, uh, and those of you that are familiar with the PCA, you're probably like, if I, uh, if I have to endure from a PCA minister, one more like Tolkien or Lord of the Rings thing, you know, I, I never get it, but, I, but it's just good stuff, right? So I'm going to share it anyway. But... Uh, those of you that have read uh, Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, and the first one, Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe, you know that there are four children that enter this mysterious land of Narnia, and one of them is a disagreeable chap, a spiteful and mean boy. His name is Edmund. And Edmund uh, is just unpleasant to be around. And uh, he wanders into Narnia, and the person he meets, which was probably appropriate, was the big bad white witch. And she immediately snares him with his love for Turkish delight, taffy. And he becomes an addict, right? She's got him on a string. And so, you know, she's bringing him along because there is a prophecy, long-standing prophecy in Narnia that said when the four sons and daughters of Adam sit on the throne, well, that's gonna be the end of her. And so her thought is, I gotta kill those four. And uh, she's gonna use him to get to the three. And uh, he, he's a rat, he's a traitor. But at some point, he, he sort of realizes, this is not a nice woman. This is a woman that is violent and wants to kill everybody, but by the time he figures it out, he's basically roped to a tree with a knife to his throat. But he's rescued. The wanderer is rescued because the great King Aslan sends a rescue party and delivers him at a great cost. And I don't want to ruin the story for you, if you haven't read it, at a great cost. And each one of us is a little Edmund. Each one of us here. Where we have to start is, you know, if you don't think like the hymn that we sang a couple weeks ago, that you're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. If you can't admit that to yourself, you're going to struggle with what James is saying here. Because at the base, all of us have to understand, like... All it takes, all it takes is a thought, a glance, a keystroke, a step. doesn't take you much to start walking somewhere, and your feet are leading you. Well, maybe not your feet. What's in your dark heart? But what does James say it is? He says, wandering from what? Anybody maybe have a passage there? Wandering from what? Truth. Wandering from the truth. Now, I, I read an article this past week, and it was by a um, professor and political theorist at Harvard named Danielle Allen. Um, where is the rest? There, Daniel Allen. And she says, in this day and age, there are four kind of truth, four kinds of truth that we're in need of. The first one she would say is the truth that we, you know, you kind of wrestle and debate in the courtroom and reach judgment about. She would call that forensic truth. And then there's the uh, moral and personal value truth side. She would say that's personal truth. And then there are the truths that a community holds together. That's social truth. But then there is truth beyond the tribe or the community. That's what she would call as reconciling truth. Now you know something? This ancient text that we read week to week, it's been around for thousands and thousands of years, is really on to that way before we're on to it. That truth is actually something very big. James says in chapter 1 this god brought us forth by the word of truth there you hear truth is something that is implanted in you and makes you alive it's not just something that sort of bounces off your head so you know we could take those four categories and get some insight into ourselves let's just use them we could we could use four other categories if we want because personally i i have found that the scripture is always relevant Whatever age we're in, because God speaks, timeless. God speaks to the world. God loves the world, so he speaks to the world. So, there is forensic or historical truth in the Christian faith. You can go to the Gospel of Luke, and Luke decides to start by saying, I want you to know that there is history to this, that uh, this is testimony, like a courtroom, and I interviewed tons of eyewitnesses. Because I want you to know it's forensic truth. And so, one of the ways we can wander, one of the ways we can wander is when we don't, we're not willing to take the authors of the Bible on their own terms. You know, Peter would say, I didn't give you cleverly invented myths. And so, when I am quick to say, first of all, maybe you just haven't done the study. And so, if not, you you might find yourself wandering. Or it might be you just sort of adopt something you hear in the age which is, well, you know, these guys all meant well, but they were all culturally bound, and they were bound by their gender, and, you know, it was relative to that, all that stuff, and so it's no longer the forensic idea is out the window. You can wander that way. But then there's also participation and experience with the truth, and this is something Presbyterians have to go back sometimes in their history because they do have a rich history of this idea. You've heard me say this before. It's not just orthodoxy in your mind. It's just not orthopraxy, what I do. It's orthopathy, what I feel, right emotions. And so this idea of participating, let me give you an example. Uh, If you know how to ride a bike... One day you started a relationship with the bike. Okay, you didn't just sit there and you know re- look at the bike and read. You started a relationship with the bike, and maybe that relationship was you know you got on it and maybe that relationship ended in a crash. I remember I had a bike uh, that uh, these bees had built a nest into, and every time I got on it, it stung me. And I would get off cry and run to my dad, and he'd be like, "What's wrong with you? Get back on that bike." Get back on the bike, sting me again, I'd run to him, and finally he was like, "Oh man, there's bees in your bike." have <laughs> a traumatic relationship with the bike. But one day, that relationship, you're riding along, and it clicks. And you never forget that feeling. You know, knowledge isn't something that just stands over here. One of the ways you can wander from the truth, especially when it comes to God, is where you treat God like the universe, like this object, and you begin to fool yourself and say, I can step outside and uh, this is God right here. God's a person. You got to engage. Because truth is personal but then also there's a social side of it right because I can wander if I begin to just sort of live in my only interpretive world that's why the community of faith and that's why you know we did the Nicene Creed we've got this historic global testimony that's gone on for thousands of years one church father said you can't have the church uh, you can't have God as your father unless you have the church as your mother what does he mean by that? If you know God, if you've come to know Jesus Christ, it's because of the scripture that was given to his people, the community, the church, it's because of the gospel, it's because of the sacraments, it's because... And so, one of the ways I can wander from the truth is when I begin to put more authority on my interpretation than I do on the historic testimony of the community. You know, I, I, I have seen that plenty in my pastoral life where basically someone is wandering away and they just say, well, I, you know, I'm sorry, Glenn, I just disagree with your interpretation. Neutralized, right? What can you say to that? Well, there's a communal word. We got to prove it this way. You know, John really said this, and, and it's not just... Um, It's not just that idea of revelation. It's proved out in relationship. This gets back to this idea of what is truth. John, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. That's truth. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going. What does he say there? The truth has to do with the way we love each other. John is saying, if you have a community, so think about this. If there there are a a number of things that can get us all hot and mad right now, this year, and I'm sure you, like me, think, I know I'm right on this, right? Like, why are those people, why is that person, why is this, and you start to get mad. I'm not saying there's not righteous anger, but you stay mad, and you find there's just bitterness and hatred in your heart. Guess what? You've wandered from the truth. You may be as right as rain. You're wrong in heaven. That's another way we can wander. But this raises the last one, this third one, because the objection comes. I got to tell you, Glenn, I get a little nervous with this idea of the community has the truth. That sounds like a cult to me, right? This group of body, this people that go, we have the truth, we have the truth, we have the truth. You're like, yeah, that can be dangerous. And I'm, I'm someone that spent some time in a Christian cult. And it was, a, it was a terrible misuse. It was amazing how much proof texting went on with the Bible, how little truth was actually said. You know? If you ever hear someone say to you, we need to get back to the, uh, the, the church of the book of Acts, Run. Because in their mind, they think, we're going we're gonna to recreate it right. Anyway, I need to get back. But the point is this. This is where, again, the Christian faith and the, what happened in the early church was so helpful. Because, you know, many of the early followers of the Christian faith were Jewish men and women. They had come to understand that Jesus was the Messiah of the Hebrew Scriptures. And all those things that God had been commanding, the rituals, the sacrifices, the ceremonies, it was about him. But there were many, they were so bound to that, right? Their ethnicity, their culture, all those different things. The truth of the Messiah was totally bound to the truth of their culture, so all of a sudden, non-Jewish people start to come in and start to say, we don't really think we need to be Jewish and follow the culture to know the Messiah. And there's a big, Pff. but it had to happen. Those that were coming from that place had to understand, and this happens, I believe, with any majority culture. There's just no, you know, there's no way about it. Any group you're in, you're going to just translate your faith through that. And so what had to happen was there had to be an invasion of the tribe. There had to be a cross-cultural work. One of the things that protects us from being cult-like in our understanding, one of the gifts God has given us, is the cross-cultural nature of the gospel. You don't have one normative culture that's saying, I define everything. And that's going to take work, because I could go in any culture in the world and there's a normative culture. But I want to say, if we're following Christ, you and I in America... White normative culture, right? If you don't like that and go, why does he always got to bring up white people? Well, then move somewhere else and deal with that normative culture. But here, that's what it is. And so the onus then becomes, I need to be listening to my cross-cultural brothers and sisters because they're going to help me out of my tribe and my bubble. I need to be involved with the historic global church in that testimony. So, those truths, Right? Forensic, personal, social, reconciling truth. Those are ways we can wander from the truth. But how does God recover wandering people? And this is the second point. I'm not going to spend as much time on that. Whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow! That sounds heroic! I mean, listen, did, did you hear that? Or did, you know, did it just go, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, I think one of the reasons it isn't that heroic to us is because we're, we've been marvelized. Not marvelized, marvelized, Right? Listen, I love the Marvel movies, but you get my point. Our view of what a hero is is not this person that wades into a hard relationship and gets gets hated. Jesus was the great recoverer of people. Look what his life was like he was called a blasphemer, he was called a moral, he was called a womanizer, he was called a drunk. Listen, uh, when someone's working with an addict, right, the addict hates you until they're free. Then they love you. It's pretty heroic to wade into it. And if you've ever had to do that, if you've had a brother and sister in your life, what I mean is a spiritual brother and sister in your life, and you took the steps to move toward them, you know those first conversations can be blows. It's heroic to go in there. In fact... Heaven will be filled with those things. These are heaven's heroes. This is what I love about it. You know, in many ways, all of our lives, if you've ever seen the film Saving Private Ryan, basically it's a story of a platoon that just goes through everything and sacrifices themselves to save one guy. You know, when you get up to heaven, I think God is going to show you what that big platoon was like. Loads of people. See, here's the thing. It might be that you said a word to someone, and you haven't seen it for five years, but that word turned them from a wandering path. It might be that you pers- per- persist with someone, and for ten years you don't know. And then they come back around and go, thank you for the sacrifice. And it can be a lonely work. And I think this is one of the reasons... That we don't have a lot of urgency. I don't know if we in the church are urgent about recovering wayward brothers and sisters. I think one of the reasons, frankly, is just the uh, impact of the culture's beliefs upon ourselves. Uh, You know, I think we believe that people's greatest need is not to be saved, it's to be happy. And so, you know, happiness in America equals salvation. Uh, and so, if someone's happy, I mean, what, what's so urgent about that? If you look at Jesus's definition of happiness, that's the one we're supposed to be going off of. But the other thing is, uh, we tend to believe that people's biggest problem is their suffering, not their sin. We think that about ourselves. My biggest problem in my life Is suffering instead of sin. Now, I know right now if you're in the whole suffering, that's smarted and you're like, listen, don't even go there. I'm worn down. Give me a moment. I know of no other person than Jesus Christ who was sensitive to the suffering. It's in his name, actually. In the Hebrew Scriptures, he's called the suffering servant. Even though he's the very Son of God, we're told that he learned obedience through suffering, which means he just didn't suffer on the cross. He just didn't suffer in the three years of his ministry. His entire life was a crescendo of suffering. So he knew it from personal experience. He knew the problem of suffering. Of course, this is part of the reason he would die. But he also spent countless hours you think about this 12 to 14 hour days sitting there with suffering people and not just sort of healing them you next you next you next you can imagine he's listening to their stories because we know he talked to people we're told that he spent until morning until evening in fact you read times where he's just trying to get a little peace with his disciples in the morning because it started early his work of with the suffering and what would happen? The suffering crowds would find him, and they, you know, and he just he couldn't help. Or when he feeds the five thousand, for you know what he's concerned about? What's going to happen to them if they try to walk home and they're not fed? No one is more of a Ph.D. No one is more experientially attuned to suffering, and no one preached more about hell than Jesus. No one said, repent, more than Jesus. It's because he understood is bad. I said this last week, that the fundamental disorder of the world behind the suffering is sin. I'm not saying that people's individual sin causes the suffering, not saying that. But he understood what the macro was, but he also understood the worst kind of suffering you can go through is self-inflicted sin-suffering because it it does a lot to you. I'll tell you something. You can suffer from cancer. You can suffer from being a war victim, trauma, all sorts of abuse, and need healing for those things. But still, you know, understand it in terms of Scripture. Like Peter says, if you get in trouble, don't, don't, don't suffer for unrighteousness' sake. Suffer for righteous' sake. Those are suffering for righteous reasons, I just named. But I don't know about you, when I've wandered, and I've got myself in a fix, and my suffering has been self-inflicted, and guilt comes with it, and shame comes with it, and the things that I did to the people while I was just out to get what I wanted, that's a problem. And so here we, we end with the good news of the gospel, because what does James tell us? He says that the wanderer, whatever multitude of sins they have committed, they can be covered. God doesn't show them to you and say, you've got a long list to work off. That's not the Christian faith. They're covered. They're atoned for by the sacrifice of Jesus, the suffering servant. Wanderers can find their slate cleaned and they find themselves saved from the eternal judgment of the selfishness and that means if you should choose if i should choose to seek a wandering person as james would say you will participate in nothing nothing smaller than the salvation, the forgiveness. Think about all the things that come to that person. And and in the end, what the motive is for you is, is your salvation great to you? You know, do you sit there, do you have moments where you're down before God and you, (laughs) you lay your heart before him, he knows your heart, and you rejoice in the gospel And you rejoice that your sin is covered and he has saved you fully and he's given you new beginnings new days the gospel as you rehearse that in your heart that gets you moving toward other people it's so you can declare that song to them you can be the one that sings that song it's so tied to our experience of this great salvation so i i want to ask you to do something um for those of you, uh, if you are a professing Christian, a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself the saved person, that means that there have been people in your life that have come and recovered you. And I, I, I would encourage you today, tomorrow, take a few minutes and write down a name or two. Who was part of your, who was part of your recovery platoon? Get your heart revved up. And then pray and say, Lord, where are you sending me? Where do I need to be deployed? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the story of the gospel. I, I, we can't, we hear it so much, and it just begins to become a cliche, but it's astounding that you, the infinite God, who's completely free, the ancient of days, the eternal one, left a throne of glory and became a nobody and suffered so that you might find people. And then those people find other people, in generations and generations, and your spirit is now, here we are, 2021, Washington, D.C., Wanderers that have been found. You're amazing. We want to be that kind of community. I pray for the wanderers that stepped in today. I pray, oh God, that they would know that you receive them with open arms and you offer them the gospel without conditions. And I pray for those of us that know in our heart there's somebody I need to pursue and there are a lot of chips on the table. I pray that you would give us the courage and the passion to seek them out even this week. In Christ's name, amen.